If you have your copy of God's Word, and I hope you do, turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 6. 1 Corinthians chapter 6. And let me say to the West Campus, it's good to be back with you. I know that Pastor John has done an incredible job the last two weeks. He is such a gifted um, communicator of God's Word, but I am glad to be back with you this morning. If this is your first time with us or you're the first time in a while or you're new here this morning, we are in a series on 1 Corinthians that we've entitled The Elephant in the Room. Paul writes the letter to the church at Corinth because of a report he has received and a letter that has been sent to him. Both the report and the letter are dealing with some issues that the church is facing, some elephants in the room. Now, last week, we zeroed in on one of the most ignored And one of the most difficult passages in the Bible, a passage that deals with church discipline. And you can understand because of the topic, church discipline, why it is ignored and why it is difficult to understand. Let me just fill you in on where we went last week. It seems that there was a man in the church, a member of the church, who claimed to be a Christian who was living in a sexual relationship with his stepmother. And this was a sexual sin that was clearly, clearly condemned in God's word. But it was not only condemned in God's world, word, the world itself, the pagan world, looked at it as being sin. The pagan world frowned upon it. And yet, the church was not only accepting of this man and his sin, they were celebrating the fact that they were so open in their views towards sin. And Paul rebuked them for this. He told them that they shouldn't be proud of this sin. Instead, they should be heartbroken because of the sin. And then Paul said that they had to expel the man from among them. They had to remove this man from the church. Now, let me clarify what 1 Corinthians 5 teaches. You see, what it is saying is this. When a person claims to be a Christian, is an active member of the church, and that person is involved in willful, deliberate, defiant sin, and despite repeated calls to repent and turn back to God, they refuse. Instead, they choose to stay in their sin. The Bible teaches there comes a point where for the good of the church... For the person's good and for the glory of God, you must remove that person from the church. You see, when we become a Christian, we are no longer living an independent life. It is no longer just about us. When we become a Christian, we become a part of the body of Christ. And everything that we do not only has an impact on us, It has an impact on every other person who is a part of the body of Christ. Now, I know for some of you, that seems very harsh. But I want you to know that in reality, church discipline is the most loving thing that we can do for a believer that is caught in sin. Just as parents sometimes must discipline a rebellious child, a loving God, through the authority of his church, at times must discipline 
a wayward child. Now, understand, church discipline is always, it is always for the purpose of correction. It is never simply for the purpose of punishment. And today, as we move to 1 Corinthians 6 and we look at these first eight verses, I want us to move from the issue of church discipline to the issue of church disputes. How do we handle disputes in the body of Christ? And let's be honest. Even though as Christians we are saved and have God's Spirit living within us, there are going to be times when, when things come up. There are going to be misunderstandings. There are going to be miscommunications. There are going to be times when our flesh takes over and, and we take advantage of other people. And, and when those things happen, when our relationships are severed or about to be severed, because of things that we have done or, or someone else has done, what are we supposed to do? Well, let's look at God's Word. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, beginning in verse 1. Follow along with me. And let's see what God says about this issue. If any of you has a dispute with another, dare he take it before the ungodly for judgment instead of before the saints? Do you not know that the saints will judge the world? And if you were to judge the world, are you not competent to judge trivial cases? Do you not know that we will judge angels? How much more the things of this life? Therefore, if you have disputes about such matters, appoint as judges even men of little account in the church. I say this to shame you. Is it possible that, that there is nobody among you wise enough to judge a dispute between believers? But instead, one brother goes to law against another, and this is in front of unbelievers. The very fact that you have lawsuits among you means that you have been completely defeated already. Why not rather be wronged? Why not rather be cheated? Instead, you yourselves cheat and do wrong. And you do this... To your brothers. Let's pray together. Father God, as we unpack this passage this morning and, and seek to find out what your word is saying to us, open our ears so that we can hear undistracted. Open our minds so that we can understand your word. And Father God, all of that is irrelevant if, if our hearts aren't open to obey. And so, Father, we pray that you will stir our hearts, our spirits, so that we will be willing to do whatever your word tells us to do. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Let me ask you a question. Have you ever been to court? Have you ever been threatened by someone to take you to court? If you have, I think you would agree with me that that is not a pleasant situation. Several weeks ago, I wasn't home. My wife was home. She was in the kitchen and the doorbell rang and she went and answered the door. And at the door were two Lexington police officers. And my wife was startled and she said, what are you doing here? <laughs> and they gave her a piece of paper. It seems that, that one of our neighbors had turned my wife in 
because she was having ladies over at her house on Monday night. And, and whoever this neighbor was felt like there were too many cars at our house and it was bothering them. And the police officer said, ma'am, you can't do this. And my wife just had this flabbergasted look on her face. I, I'm taking her word for it. I wasn't there. I think she was probably boiling hot. But she kind of did her shoulders up and said, okay. When I got home, she told me about it and we talked about it and she was steaming hot. Let me just say, she didn't want to do Christ-like things. She really didn't. And we talked and, and we decided that, one, we hadn't done anything wrong. We checked our homeowner's policy. We checked everything else. and We hadn't done anything wrong. We hadn't broken any rules. But we decided for the good of our witness to our neighbors... We were going to deal with the situation in a right way. Later on, I went and I knocked on the door of several of our neighbors. I'm still going to others because no one has owned up to it yet. <laughs> but I knocked on the door of a neighbor and said, hey, hope you're having a good day today. I got a question for you. Did you turn my wife into the police? <laughs> and I said, you know, if you did and... And we offended you. I sincerely want to apologize. But I sure do wish you would have come to us and talked to us. Because we never want to do anything that will hurt our neighbors or cause offense to our neighbors. It's not fun being threatened with going to court. It's not fun going to court. But the Greeks, listen, the Greeks enjoyed court. <laughs> It was a social event to the Greeks. It was a form of entertainment. It was a part of their everyday life. One ancient writer said that every Athenian was a lawyer. And if that was true for the Athenians, it was most likely true for the Corinthians. When a problem arose between two individuals, the natural recourse was to go to court. And so each party was assigned an arbitrator... And then they were assigned a neutral arbitrator. And those three arbitrators would come together and they would try to solve the problem. If they couldn't solve the problem, then they would turn to a court of 40 people. And that court of 40 people would assign an arbitrator to each of the parties. And they would take their case to the court of 40. And if the court of 40 couldn't solve the case... Then they would take their court or their case to a court of a hundred up to several thousand. Now, here's what you need to understand. Every man who was 60 years of age or older had to serve as an arbitrator in court. And every man who was 30 years of age or older had to serve on the jury. And so most likely... The Corinthians were in court on a regular basis, either as a party to a lawsuit, as arbitrators, or as jurors. And you may sit back and say, I cannot believe that they live that way. But if that's what you're saying, time out. Hold it. You haven't really looked at our land, have you? 
I mean, look at all the reality TV shows that we have today that deal with judges and juries. We have the People's Court, Judge Judy, Judge Mathis, Judge Joe Brown, Divorce Court. And I'm sure there are others. We love as people to sit down in front of the TV and watch people air their dirty laundry, don't we? And we just laugh and we go, look at those idiots. But we enjoy it. But understand, it's not just on TV. Ken Sand, who is the founder of Peacemakers, a ministry to, to help individuals and churches deal with conflict biblically, said this. He said, by all accounts, America has become the most litigious society on the face of the earth with millions and millions of cases being filed in state courts every year. Civil lawsuits cost the United States economy, get this, two hundred billion dollars a year civil lawsuits 200 billion dollars a year in a recent year there were over 16 million lawsuits filed in state courts one year 16 million lawsuits it seems that that I'll sue has become our national anthem we, we have children suing parents. We have parents suing schools. We have players suing coaches. We have members suing churches. Lawyer Robert Pampianco, who was a former um, member of the or leader of the Washington Legal Foundation, said this. He said, suing someone has become the preferred means of solving disputes. Now, now understand, I know that some suits that go to court are are needed. I understand that. But if we're honest, I think we'll have to agree that a lot, and, and maybe most of the suits that go to court don't need to go to court. I mean, listen to some of these. Let me give you some. Richard Overton sued Anheuser-Busch. The reason he sued Anheuser-Busch is because he claimed he suffered emotional stress, mental injury, financial loss because drinking beer did not make his fantasies of beautiful women in tropical settings come to life. He saw the commercials and in the commercials these, you know, beautiful women came to life and fulfilled the man's fantasy. And so he's saying that should happen and it didn't happen. It just caused him to drink more Bud Light, he said. Austin Aiken sued NBC. He claimed an episode of Fear Factor caused him suffering, injury, and great pain. He said that watching the contestants eat rats on television made him dizzy, lightheaded, causing him to vomit and run into a doorway. Turn the channel. A woman went to her friend's house to ask for a haircut. She wasn't happy with her new look. She claimed her friend had willfully, intentionally, and maliciously cut her hair without her consent. She sued her. This was crazy. Christopher Roller, a resident of Minnesota, sued David Blaine and David Copperfield, you know, the two magicians. He demanded 10% of their total income for life. And the reason is because he believed that the magicians were defying the laws of physics and therefore they were exercising godly powers. And to make matters worse, he was suing them because he said he was God and therefore they were using his powers without his right. You say he's crazy. 
And I'm here to tell you that half the people that go to court are crazy. We need to stop the madness. Now, as we unpack this passage, there are two things I want us to see. I want to see a problem, and, and then I want us to see a principle. First of all, the problem. Here's the problem. Christians were taking one another to court. The message translation in verse 1 says, How dare you take each other to court? Does it make any sense to go before a court that knows nothing of God's way instead of going before the family of Christians? Later on in verse 5, he says, shame on you. You see, the Corinthians were used to disputing their matters publicly. And when they became believers, instead of changing that, they continued that. You see, they continued their old habits. They continued their, their old ways, even though they were believers. And, and maybe we've done the same thing today. We've forgotten that as believers, we are called to put to death the old attitudes of the past life. We are called to take on the mind of Christ. I came across a quote from Warren Berger, who is the former Chief Justice of the United States Supreme Court until 1986. This is what he said. One reason our courts have become overburdened is that Americans are increasingly turning to the courts for relief from a range of personal distresses and anxieties. Remedies for personal wrongs that once were considered the responsibilities of institutions other than the courts are now boldly asserted as legal entitlements. The courts have been expected to fill the void created by the decline of church, family, and neighborhood unity. Wow. Associate Justice of the Supreme Court, Antonin Scalia, said this. He said, I think this passage, 1 Corinthians 6, 1 through 8, it's neat to hear a chief or an associate justice referring to the Bible, isn't it? He said, I think this passage has something to say about the proper Christian attitude towards civil litigation. I think we're too ready to seek vindication or vengeance through adversary proceedings rather than peace through mediation. And then he went on to say, good Christians, just as they are slow to anger, should be slow to sue. Now, Paul says that it is wrong for Christians to take Christians to court for three reasons. First of all, they were seeking earthly rather than heavenly wisdom. We see that in verses 1 through 5. Paul says you're taking your disputes before the ungodly rather than before the saints. And listen, Paul is not saying that all courts, all judges, all lawyers are inherently wicked. Some of you may think that. But that's not what Paul was saying. You see, the word he uses for ungodly here is the same word he uses in Acts 24 that distinguishes between the saved and the lost. You see, what Paul is saying is you were taking your cases before those who were lost when you should be taking your cases before those who were saved. Here's why. Regardless of how educated, how intelligent an unsaved judge may be, they are lacking two things. They are lacking the Spirit of God living within them and the Word of God guiding them. Therefore, regardless of how well-meaning they may be, how knowledgeable they may be, they will not be judging with the mind of Christ and the wisdom of God as we believe Christians should judge. 
Now notice what Paul tells us, and this will blow your mind. He said Christians will one day judge the world. Now what does that mean? Some say it refers to to that time known as the millennial reign when we will rule and reign with Christ. We will judge the world. And then he added to that, we will one day judge angels. Those powerful spirit beings that have power beyond our imagination. Now, some say that that refers to to our judgment with God on the the fallen angels, the demons. Now, I've got to be honest with you. I'm not sure what this passage means when it says we will judge the world and we will judge angels. But I tell you what I do know. I do know that it's saying that if in the future we will judge the world, and in the future we will judge angels, then certainly we should have the wisdom among us to judge among trivial issues. Amen? And yet we are taking these issues to unsaved people. Paul is saying that among you, you should be able to find at least one person that has the wisdom to resolve these disputes. That brings me to the second reason it's wrong, and that is they were harming their witness. Notice what it says in verse 6. They were doing this in front of unbelievers. And you may not like this, and you may not think it's fair, but understand. As a believer, the world is watching us. Everything we do, how we handle our problems, how we face our difficulties how we handle our disagreements. All of those things are on display before a seeking, searching world. And the Apostle Paul says in verse 7, you have been completely defeated. Now, he's not talking about a judgment in court. He's not saying you've gone before unsaved judges and you've lost your case. No, he's saying you have lost your witness. Your actions and your attitudes have caused you to be defeated when it comes to your witness for Jesus Christ. Do you remember what Jesus said in Matthew 5? He said, let your light shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father which is in heaven. Peter, one of the disciples, said this. He said, live such good lives among the pagans, the lost, That though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God. The Apostle Paul simply said this, don't cause anyone to stumble. Listen very carefully. When we become a follower of Jesus Christ, our first aim, our number one ambition is to point other people to the Savior who alone can forgive sins, who alone can bring meaning to life. And we should be willing to go to any lengths, even to the point of suffering wrong, to accomplish this task. That brings me to the third reason that what they were doing was wrong. You see, it revealed their sinful spirits. Look at verse 8. It says they were cheating and doing wrong, and to make matters worse, they were doing it to their own family, the family of faith, their brothers and sisters in Christ. Now, the Bible doesn't specifically say this, but I believe 
that what they were trying to do was compartmentalize their lives. You see, they had church over here and business over here. They had the spiritual over here and, and the, the financial over here. They had the religious over here and the civil over here. But Paul says, you can't do that. You can't compartmentalize your life. And we can't do that. You see, we are Christ's followers born into his family by his spirit. And his spirit makes us new people. And as new people, we are to live differently. We are to cheat people. We are to take advantage of people. It's not about us coming out on top. It's not about us making sure that we get ours. It's not even about our rights. Everything, when I become a Christ follower, becomes about Jesus. Everything is for one purpose, and that is to point to Jesus and bring glory to his name. Whatever that takes, wherever it leads, whatever it may cost. So the problem, Christians were taking Christians to court. They were acting like unbelievers. But let's move on to the second truth, and that's the principle. And the principle is this. Christians should settle disputes with other Christians in the church. I know that's novel. I know that's new. But that's what the Bible teaches. Christians should settle their disputes with other Christians within the church. And let me clarify something before we go any further. Paul is not saying that Christians should never go to court. As a matter of fact, Paul was taken to court in Acts 18, and he was exonerated before the pagan courts. Later on in the book of Acts, Paul appealed to Caesar, which was the court of Rome. He appealed, appealed to Roman law. There are times that the court system is the only way to protect the innocent and those who can't protect themselves to right a wrong or provide justice. There are times when we must appeal to the court system. The Bible makes it clear that you and I as believers are to submit to the law. The law is for our good. In Romans 13 verse 1, Paul said, Everyone must submit himself to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except that which God has established. The authorities that exist have been established by God. In 1 Peter 2, Peter said, Submit yourself for the Lord's sake, to every authority instituted among men, whether to the king as the supreme authority or to the governors who were sent by him to punish those who do wrong and command those, commend those who do right. You see, the Bible teaches that as Christians, we aren't above the law and we aren't to live independent of the law. We are to submit to the law for God's glory and for our good. Now, unless you misunderstand, there is one exception. When the law of the land is telling us to go against something that is clearly revealed in God's word and is God's revealed will, then we must obey God rather than men and we must be willing to suffer the consequence for it. But understand that is the exception to the rule. You see, 1 Corinthians 6 isn't saying that we never go to court. It's dealing with trivial disputes among brothers. It's not speaking about 
crimes being committed. It's not talking about individuals being taken advantage of by business. It's it's not talking about friendly lawsuits that that someone files against an insurance company to, to get the insurance company to pay what needs to be paid. It's not even talking about taking a non-believer to court. The Apostle Paul was crystal clear in verse 6. It's all about settling the minor matters that a brother or sister has against another brother or sister. Now hear me. It's not even saying that if someone plays the Christian card, we can never seek restitution or press charges because sometimes people claim something just to protect themselves. This is speaking about two individuals who were involved in a civil battle who are believers, who were actively involved in the church. And Paul says, when that happens, you don't go to the court system, you go to the church to solve your dispute. So how do we do that? Let me give you several principles and we're going to close. First of all, we begin by examining ourselves. What is our motivation? Why am I doing this? Is it to get even? Is it for selfish gain? Is it for what I can get out of it? Is what I'm about to do, is it going to bring honor to the name of Jesus? James said in James chapter 4, What causes fights and quarrels among you? Don't, Don't they come from your desires that battle within? You want something you don't get. You kill and covet because you cannot have what you want. You quarrel and fight. You see, many times, maybe most of the time, our quarrels are the results of our selfish desires. To get something we don't have or we can't have. That's why Jesus said before we ever deal with an issue that we have with someone else, We first of all examine ourselves. You see, in Matthew 7, Jesus isn't saying that we never judge. Jesus is saying before you ever take judgment, you have to first of all deal with the log in your own eye. Jesus said first, take the plank out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to remove the speck from your brother's eye. So begin by examining yourself. Deal with your attitudes. Deal with your motivation. Deal with the sin that is in your life before you begin judging other people and what they're doing and why they're doing it. Second thing, before you make a decision what to do, you need to overlook minor offenses. You need to be willing to overlook minor offenses. Proverbs 19 verse 11 says, a man's wisdom gives him patience. It is to his glory to overlook an offense. In Proverbs 17, Solomon says, starting a quarrel was like breaching a dam. Drop the matter before a dispute breaks out. Now, how do you know when to overlook an offense? How do you know when not to overlook an offense? First of all, you need to ask yourself, has this offense created a wall between you and the other person that cannot be resolved? If it's created a wall that cannot be resolved, you need to do something because God doesn't want walls between us. And so if the wall cannot be resolved, then you have to do something. Second thing you need to ask is this. Is what being done going to hurt the name of Christ or someone else? If it's not going to hurt the name of Christ, if it's not going to hurt someone else, overlook it. 
Third, if it's something that cannot be overlooked, go to the one you have the dispute with. Matthew 18 is very clear on that. Our first recourse is always to settle disputes privately. We go to someone and say, hey, you sold me a car that's a piece of junk. <laughs> Let's talk about it. Or you promised this and you didn't deliver. What can we do? Or you've broken our agreement. How can we resolve this? You go to the person. If that doesn't resolve the issue, then you go to the church. 1 Corinthians 6 verse 5 says, Surely there is at least one wise person in your fellowship who can settle a dispute between fellow Christians. We don't need to go to unbelievers that don't have the wisdom of God or the word of God. We need to go to people that have both so that we can know that we are in the will of God for our life. And then finally, and this is a difficult one for us in our day and age, we need to be willing to suffer wrong. Did you hear me? Oh, goodness, we need to be willing to suffer wrong. Paul said, why not rather be wronged? Why not rather be cheated? Sometimes the best thing to do is drop it. Sometimes the best thing to do is forgive and forget. Years ago, I had gotten a used car. It was new to us, but I'd gotten a new car for us. And we were selling an old car. And, and there was a young man in our church. His family went to our church, and he wanted to buy the car. And he didn't have the money to buy the car. And so I said, okay, I'll let you have the car, and you can just pay me $50 a month until you pay it off. Well, he paid me $50. Paid me $50 when he picked up the car. I gave him the title and he went. I went to him the first month and said, hey, I know it's easy to forget these things, but it's the second month. You got my car. I need $50. He said, I don't have it. I said, okay. I'll give you grace. Well, to make a long story short, I never got anything but $50. Now, I could have taken him to court. I could have taken him to the church. But I felt like that for me, it was better at this point in time to suffer loss. And to sit down and talk to him about grace and mercy. And how the next person that he deals with may not have grace and mercy. You see, sometimes we need to be willing to suffer loss for the sake of the kingdom of God. Jesus said it this way. He said, do not resist an evil person. If someone strikes you on your right cheek, turn to him the other also. If someone wants to sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. Well, we don't like those words. The crazy thing is they're in red, aren't they? They're the words of Jesus. Jesus said there are times in life when it's better to let someone take advantage of you than it is to demand your rights. You may say that's not fair, it's not right, but sometimes we give up what is fair and right for what is good and best. 
You say, I don't deserve to be treated that way. Jesus didn't deserve to hang on a cross. But he did. And he did it for your good. And he did it for my good. So what about it? Are you willing to even suffer loss at times? For the sake of your witness and the kingdom of God. You say, Rocky, I can't do that. I'm here to tell you, you can't do that. Apart from God's spirit living in you and living through you, giving you the desire and the power to do it. You you can't. Because our natural inclination is to get what's ours. To not let anyone ever take advantage of us. And yet when God's spirit comes to live in us, he changes everything. Now, if you're here and and you're a believer, I'm here to tell you. We need to stop the madness. We need to stop it. We need to realize as Christians, we are called to live differently. We never take advantage of someone. We always right a wrong when we're wrong. And there are even times when we are willing to be wronged for the sake of the gospel and the good of our witness. Now, for you who may not be a believer, and you're saying, Rocky, I'd like to do that. I'd like to be there. How can I do that? Well, you can't. You can't unless God's spirit comes to live in you. How does that happen? Well, first of all, you've got to invite him in. But understand, God's spirit is a holy spirit. And so that means that we have to be willing to turn from our sin, our self-centered living, if we want God's spirit to live in us. We've got to admit, I've been living life wrong. We've got to admit it. Second, we've got to recognize that we can never earn it. God's Spirit doesn't come to live in us because we've done something good. God's Spirit comes to live in us as a gift that was purchased and paid for through the blood of Jesus Christ. Jesus died so that we could not only go to heaven but so that his spirit can indwell us and give us victory over sin. But then third, we have to surrender. We have to daily give ourselves over to Jesus and allow his spirit to fill us. The command in Ephesians, be filled with the spirit, is in a continuous form, which means we need to daily, we may even need to hourly ask God to fill us for His Spirit because it is so easy not to let the Spirit control us. So if you're here and you're saying, man, that's what I want, you've got to invite Him in to do that. You've got to admit you're filled with sin and self-centeredness right now and you've got to turn from it. You've got to accept His gift of love 
that is revealed when Jesus died for our sins on the cross. And you've got to surrender your life to it. So if you want to do that, I want to give you the opportunity. I want you to bow your head right now. Close your eyes. With every head bowed, with every eye closed. For you who are not believers and you say, I want Jesus to change my life. Pray this prayer. Dear Jesus, I come to you this morning admitting that I've been living in rebellion. I've been living a sinful, self-centered, selfish life. I don't want to live that way anymore. Forgive me. Jesus, I know that I'm never going to be good enough. I know that salvation is a gift that you paid for when you died on the cross. I'm trusting you to save me and and to change me. Right now, I'm giving you control. Everything that I am, I'm giving to you. Thank you, Jesus, for hearing me. Thank you, Jesus, for saving me. Amen. Now, with your head still bowed, your eyes still closed, if you're here and you're saying, I'm a believer, but boy, this is tough. I want to demand my rights. I don't want to be taken advantage of. And, And understand, there are times that we're not called to. There are times that we have to stand up, particularly for those who can't stand up for themselves. But, but there are other times that we suffer wrong. And if you're saying, I want to do that and I'm struggling, I want you to pray this morning just totally surrendering everything to Jesus. Asking Him to begin to live through you. Just take a moment right now and pray that. Father God, I pray that we will live so differently from the world that the world will take notice and will glorify our Heavenly Father. Amen.